Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to a very special episode of West Bank Robbery. It's me, Free Palestine. You also call me Bassam. Uh, I'm here with J.G. Michael, my co-host for the day, from the very renowned and prolific podcast, Parallax Views. Say hi to everybody, J.G. How's it going? How's it going? I, I You know, thank you for calling it prolific. I, I sometimes worry that not enough people get the uh, episodes because... I had someone tell me they think I'm shadow banned because one of my uh, latest episodes is like not getting many clicks on Twitter and no one's seeing it. So I don't know what's happening, but wouldn't surprise me. You've got a dedicated fan base. You know, you've got Colin Powell on there and shit. Not Colin Powell, Lawrence Wilkerson. <laughs> uh, you know, you've got Dick Cheney and Bush and ah! we don't have any of them. Um your interview catalog. Yeah, I don't know. Stanley was very nice. I'm glad we did this. Oh, guys, today we're interviewing Stanley Cohen. He was Hamas's lawyer. He was Hezbollah's lawyer. He, well, uh, we, we, should, we should clarify that. Uh, lawyer for alleged members of Hezbollah. Yeah. Yes. Well, Hamas is different. He has actually defended people involved with Hamas. So. Yeah. Or at least been in contact with people. You, you, we'll hear that in the beginning of the interview. He, is, he knows people from Hamas. Um, He's down with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, man, very nice. I was kind of afraid he would yell at me. Also, listeners, if you know me, this is very unusual. But I showed up 37 minutes late to this interview. It happens. You were at the CIA black site. Yeah, they were getting some answers out of me. I gave every name, every single one. My middle one, my last one. Oh my god. So what, what what did you think of the conversation overall though before we, we oh, get into uh, it? I loved it. It was it was hilarious, dude. It was so funny. I love this guy. Yeah, he has a way with words. He has he the gift so of gab. Cool. And he's a gas he's fly, so, cool. so you know, I, I, I think people guy. like that. I, I'm glad I've made contact with him because if I ever get entrapped, like if the FBI like leads like us like a trail of MMs to like a big cartoon bomb or something to arrest me, um, I hope he's there to defend me. For you, uh, for you, I think it would be a, a pretty lady painted on the side of a mountain, and they get you right before you run into. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> the thing, the thing is, so Stanley is like Mister Controversy, but in all my experiences with him, I've always found him like a very generous yeah, human very being. Quite and honestly, he just kind of took the facts the way they were. You know, he was like. He was very even-handed in his approach. He did hate some motherfuckers. You know, he's got beef. Like, don't get me wrong. But that beef is well served. Well, that's the thing. He, I, people people don't like that he is a fiery orator. But, you know, I you know, I think, you know, passion says something about a person. Yeah, he's like Cicero. And he has a lot of passion. He's incredible. I love this guy. I didn't, like, I wasn't, like, super, like, I had heard the name and I had seen him before. I didn't really, like, look into his work that much. Um I had definitely seen the photo of him in the Kofia. I was like, this is the lawyer. This is every Palestinian lawyer. This is the guy we got. Um, so I was definitely familiar with that. Um, yeah. All right. Well, shall we get to the interview? Let's do it. All right. See you on the other side, listeners. You're listening to the West Bank Robbery Podcast. Uh, I'm guest hosting today. This is JG Michael from Parallax News. Usually, 
My friend Bassam is doing main hosting duties. He's stuck in traffic right now. But we have a very special guest. I've spoken to him before on my main show, Parallax Views. He's a lawyer with uh, quite the reputation uh, in a lot of parts. Uh, it's a good reputation. In other parts, he gets called a lot of names. And he's laughing when I say that. He is Stanley Cohen. How are you doing? I'm fine. It's good to see you again, and thank you for the invitation. And, uh, I don't know. Today, I guess I'll put my good hat on. Stanley, why are you uh, Mr. Controversial for some? Um, well, I've, I've spent a lifetime in beginning well before I was an attorney, and I've been practicing for now 40 years, uh, being friction onto the machine, uh, challenging the status quo ante, uh, uh, representing the despair, the despised, and the disaffected. Um, and in particular, over the last 25 to 30 years, with a heavy focus on, on national liberation movements and various groups that are uh, cheaply um, described as terrorists or, or uh, uh, militants or, or opponents of the state, um, and while the second and third descriptions are true, I, I don't represent Wall Street, and I don't represent politicians, and I don't represent states. So, a uh, terrorist lawyer, I'm not. You talk a little bit about. I think a lot of people know you if they've if they've seen your name as the. Uh, I've seen you referred to as the Hamas lawyer or the Hezbollah lawyer. Um, how did you get involved in? being a lawyer for either these groups or people involved with these groups? Well, I, I, let me start with the second reference. I've never, although I've, I've handled cases um, in federal court in the United States with persons alleged to have been involved with, with Hezbollah. And although I have at various times provided legal advice to the organization, to the movement, to leaders in it, and to El Manar, um, I, I, I've never served as quote unquote a, an attorney for the for the movement. I mean Hamas, I have. Um, I've represented various leaders and the movement itself and various crossroads of history for going on thirty years. That began with my uh, representing one of the original framers or founders of Hamas, who was the first head of their political wing, uh, Musa Abu Marzouk. When I represented him in 1995 through 1997 in our successful effort to stave off uh, an extradition request by Israel. Um, and from there, uh, numerous other um, acknowledged members of Hamas or other persons who allegedly connected with them, both in domestic courts uh, and in international proceedings. Um, I have provided legal counsel and advice to various members and the movement itself on and off for almost 30 years. What was your experience like with regards to uh, Hamas uh, members? Um, I was always impressed. Uh, extraordinarily uh, bright, committed, focused, principled, um, learned, experienced, seasoned, all the things you would want and, and political movements, especially resistance movements, every major leader and founder that I've dealt with, known, and it's probably pretty much all of them, brings to the table all of those. Uh, 
the West in general, the United States in particular, goes to great pains to sort of paint the, the leadership as ISIS, as, you know, these 18-year-olds from the UK that get on a boat and travel somewhere, forgetting that the entire leadership and the framers and founders were almost all from Gaza. Um, almost all were very successful in their own right, even before the, the evolution of Hamas, where engineers and scientists and lawyers and doctors and and scholars and poets and writers and journalists and uh, very successful in their own right who had a very bright future, many of them outside of Gaza, uh, that would not have had to deal with the sacrifices the leadership has had to do, who returned to Gaza, returned to Palestine, and then sooner or later again had to leave because had they remained there, they would have been assassinated by Israel as so many of the earlier leaders were. Um, so this this is not this is not a group of, of 18-year-olds who decide one day to grab a flight to go to Syria and join this bizarre movement. This is a, a movement of, of Palestinians from Gaza, highly educated, highly successful, highly principled, highly determined in their own right. Um, they are very um, uh, seasoned, sophisticated, principled, and determined. I want to talk about what's happening now, but I did... The, the only other question I had about your experiences with Hamas was, um, you know, I've, I've had a wide array of guests on my other show, Parallax Views, and, you know, I've had some of those guests say, well, after October 7th, we know uh, what Hamas wants to do, and they'll say, oh, it's, it's, it's genocidal. And then I will have other guests say, well, you know, older charters may have come off as very anti-Semitic, but, you know, recent charters from Hamas haven't. You're a, a Jewish lawyer that, that has worked with Hamas. So what do you think about these claims that uh, Hamas has some genocidal intent towards the Jewish people? <laughs> yes, they're going to launch their 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 F-35s, their, their submarines, their, their tanks, their bazookas, their 50 caliber uh, armory, and they're going to go, you know, wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. Let me begin by saying, first of all, what I've said, um, we don't know what happened October 7th. What we hear is we now have had a, a, a statement by Hamas put out in the last few days that specifically, as I knew it would, denied any of the allegations. Uh, we don't know what happened on, on October 7th. What we do know is that the Israeli propaganda, you know, it's one thing on Monday, it's another thing on Wednesday. The evidence says one thing on Tuesday, says something else on Thursday. We do know that while there have been sweeping allegations, both the numbers of people who lost their lives, their background, uh, painting this this huge loss of, of, of civilians, which as it turns out, by virtue of Israel's own recitation now was primarily not civilians, but under international law were legitimate targets. And I'm not su suggesting anything by that. Uh, we do know there have been these bold assertions about babies that have been beheaded and burned to death and mass rapes and all of these allegations, which day by day, week by week, month by month have proved to be bullshit. Um, we do know that the, the, the locations that were, were, were targeted and struck were military or security reservist locations that were housing uh, hundreds of, of what would be considered legitimate targets. We also know that there were others besides Hamas that were involved in the fighting that went on. We know now that numerous Israelis who lost their lives, who may very well have been civilians, lost their lives by virtue of Israeli helicopters, gunships, 
uh, firebombing, um, by gun battles. Um, my response with regard to October 7th is Hamas has made clear since 2015 when they accepted the jurisdiction of the ICC that they're ready, willing, and able to step into the ICC or any other international forum that has uh, a criminal prosecution component to make their case, bring their witnesses, bring their evidence, bring their examination. Why is Israel not? If Israel has a case, if Israel has evidence, if Israel has witnesses, if Israel has proof, let them step into a courtroom with the understanding that what is good for the goose is good for the gander, that entitles the quote-unquote other side, not just Hamas, but the Palestinian people to put Israel on trial, to make their case, to prove their case. Hamas has never run from it. It's interesting that recently, although the ICC found that, I, the IC, that, that it had jurisdiction over Israel in 2021 uh, on the basis of Palestine as a recognized state for purposes of the Rome Statute and on the basis that Israel was being investigated, not for what it's done within, quote unquote, Israel proper, but rather on the basis of what it's done or not done in the occupied territories. Um, why is it that Israel had absolutely no problem with immediately responding to the ICJ, but it has run from the ICC for years? Can it be the ICC is a criminal trial, is a criminal proceeding where it's not just double, triple hearsay and rhetoric, where there's witnesses, examination, cross-examination, evidence, forensic findings, where double, triple, quadruple hearsay, which is the linchpin of Israel's um, claim of what did or did not happen on October 7th, furthers their goal. Why is it that they have walked into a jurisdiction which is based upon hearsay, double and triple, uh, unsubstantiated hearsay by Israel, irrelevant claims, but yet it runs from the ICC. And the answer is simple. The ICC issues arrest warrants. The ICC can put people in prison. The ICC can freeze assets, none of which can be done by the ICJ. With regard to the nonsense of, you know, Hamas hates Jews, that's that's absurd. Um, it's, 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 it's a talisman. It's sort of like Israel saying that it's the only democracy in the Middle East. It's the equivalent of Israel talking about, we want peace and justice for all. At the same time that it has a nation state which exalts Judaism to the exclusion of all other religions, at the same time that it exalts, it has 65 separate laws that benefit Jews alone, but does not. I, I want you to talk about that because one thing that people always say to me is they'll say, uh, you know, these sort of centrist types will say, oh, but, you know, Israel is a democracy and Israel uh, has Israeli Arabs. They never call them Israeli Palestinians, which I think is telling. But uh, go on, because I think people need to understand well, how uh, Israeli Arabs are treated. Well, as you said, they're not as there's no such thing as an Israeli Arab um, unless it is, quote, an Arab. And I'd be surprised who moved to Israel was granted citizenship and status uh, from Morocco, from, from the Gulf, from somewhere else. The so-called Israeli Arabs are Palestinian. Uh, Israel never refers to them as Palestinian because it's part of its systematic intent to ethnically cleanse, not just by slaughter, by theft, by detention, by disappearing, by assassination, by denying of food, by carpet bombing, but by remaking history that they don't exist. So I've had discussions with Israeli lawyers that I've had to deal with over the years that hit walls because there's repeated references to Israeli Arabs. And I say, well, who are the Arabs? But 
Um, the notion of Israel, Israel as a democracy is sort of like describing Donald Trump, Trump as a human rights activist. Um, it sells to the people that wish to hear the market, that wish they, that, that want to buy the nonsense. Israel, make no mistake about it, particularly now, more so than ever, it's brazen and it's palpable, is owned by what, what I call the Brooklyn Kahanists. The, 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 the inheritors of the Baruch Goldstein school of, of, of Judaism, not even Judaism, when we were to Zionism, which says mass assassination, ethnic cleansing, war crimes and genocide is appropriate, is reasonable, is responsible, because when we talk to God, God sends us messages back that say it's cool. So if God tells us it's cool, it's cool. These are wingnuts. These are crazed, maniacal lunatics that come from several generations of Zionists that laid the seed. In terms of Israel as a democracy, there is no system of checks and balances. The Knesset basically owns the state. Even though the recent attempt to formally overtake the judiciary failed, keep in mind the Knesset is able to control and dictate the way the judiciary operates. Keep in mind that you've got millions of Palestinians that never see the inside of a civil court movement, which is the essence of a democracy with checks and balances, but are dealt with, are detained indefinitely, untried, unconvicted, unsentenced as political detainees. It's because they breathe air because they're Palestinian. And that's totally in a military setting. That's not the linchpin of a democracy. Number two, um, a democracy does not exalt one religion to the exclusion of all others. Israel does, specifically by the nation state law. Number three. Yeah, the basic law, I think it was uh, instituted, especially in 2018. Yeah, yeah. It's, what they did was they the Knesset memorialized what de facto had been there forever. The other thing is you've got 65 separate laws, benefits, status, standing, access, economic support, housing that are designed by intent that benefit only Israeli Jews. Israeli Palestinians are not permitted to gain access to them or get the benefit. You have the ticking time bomb theory, which still claims which Dershowitz brought up years ago, which the court purportedly struck down, or preventive detention, or extrajudicial assassinations. Now, the U.S. Is, has also been a, a very skilled practitioner at that, but we're dealing specifically with Israel. So the notion that a state that by design exalts one belief, one religion, one faith, to the exclusion of all others, the notion that a state which has no checks and balances, as does Israel, have none. The notion that a military government controls millions of people who live under the daily yoke of it, like in South Africa. The notion that a state that exalts 65 benefits solely for the benefit of Israeli Jews and the exclusion of all others, the notion that that's a democracy? Well, if that's a democracy, then, then Adolf Hitler was a progressive who just was misunderstood. It's nonsense. I also wanted to ask you about one thing I don't think we hear in the U.S. media, especially, is the grievances that Palestinians have and their fears. Uh, you know, with this bombing campaign happening right now, I think it triggers a lot of uh, memories that are in the collective consciousness of Palestinians. But we don't hear in our media about things like the Nakba. We don't hear about specific incidents like the Tantora massacre 
Since you've spoken with a number of Palestinians and worked with Palestinians over the years, can you talk about the side of, of this issue that is not covered in the U.S. media and, you know, just the suffering that Palestinians have gone through while the world seems to just watch and, and not really do anything about it? Well, nothing of truth has ever been, ever, 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 since 19, since even before 1948, when, when terrorist assassins, murderers, bombers, kidnappers um, from a European colonial project essentially invaded another state and unleashed bombings, mass murders, kidnappings, executions of not just Palestinians, but of British soldiers, a letter bomb campaigns. So this is where it began. And then you go into the Nakba, and then which never ended. You just go into new iterations of the Nakba. Uh, but the mainstream media in the United States and the West in particular uh, supports uh, the, the 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 propaganda, the sale. It has a notion of a marketplace of ideas when it comes to the travails of the Palestinian people, both within Palestine on the ground and the diaspora community. There's one narrative, and that's the narrative that's sold by whether it's the ADL, whether it's APAC, whether it's 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 quote unquote liberal Zionist. That's the only market that's sold. And whenever, as we recently saw with MSNBC, whenever there are journalists who are otherwise respected that begin to say anything that that shakes that tree, that begins to bring forward. Uh, the reality of what it's been to be Palestinian on the ground in the diaspora community, the shows are shut down and the broadcasters are fired. Um, needless to say, prior to the last three months, um, over the years, there is abundant, overwhelming evidence that more than 2 million Palestinians, um, original Palestinians, have been dispossessed from their homes detained in military settings, upwards of 800,000 people, uncharged, untried, unconvicted, assassinated, wounded, crippled, starved, denied travel, denied food, denied electricity. How many hundreds of children have died awaiting a pass so that they could go from hospitals in Gaza that were denied medical equipment, medical supplies and goods by Israel? Um, awaiting a pass to go across to get medical help elsewhere, hundreds, perhaps thousands. We know the Great March in Gaza two years ago, some 30,000 Palestinian demonstrators. And sure, some of them were active, were violent. They were uh, lighting balloons and floating them in the air. But the vast majority of the 30,000 people who were shot, including journalists, including medics, including doctors, including uh, poets and writers and children and women and the elderly, were just shot and killed or crippled for the, for the, for the, for the dare of doing nothing more than, than demonstrating. Um, we know that by any standard of imagination, um, the occupied territories are in violation of international law. They make the occupation and apartheid of South Africa look like an enlightened idea. Um, millions of Palestinians, you know, you hear about the Nakba, you hear about Sabah Shatila, you hear about the 5th, 6th, or 7th attack on Janine, you hear about the 10th, the 15th, the 20th attack on Gaza. And yes, the world can't duck and hide over the last three months, over the 25 to 30,000 dead civilians or missing civilians. Um, the 15,000. Many of whom are children and women. 15,000 are children. 
and, and more. That's just the children uh, with 90% dispossessed, with 70% uh, of or 80% of the land leveled, um, with a half million people suffering from various infectious diseases that are spreading now, uh, with people starving. Um, I mean, I don't, you know, the, 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 the record here, look, you know, there's a saying in, 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 in criminal proceedings, criminal courts, that you put your case out there, and at the end of it, the bottom line is the court can take judicial notice, guilty as charged. There is not a single person who doesn't have an agenda. There is not a single academic, scholar, international litigator, uh, honest observer who has observed, who has seen, who has witnessed, who has been on the ground in Gaza or in the expat communities because expat, forced, diaspora community, where the vast majority of Palestinians are refugees, millions, who are denied citizenship and where they've had to take refuge. They may be given temporary asylum, but they're denied citizenship, who can't go home to visit their families, who can't get in and out, who have health problems that aren't being treated properly. I don't think anyone with open eyes and an honest heart can say that there has been another uh, group of people that has been targeted since the end of World War II and that has suffered more systemic, institutional, and unbroken hate, violence, death, and destruction than Palestinians. And the fact that Western mainstream media, in particular the United States, keeps saying October 7th, October 7th, October 7th, is, is nothing but a talisman because the reality of it is you can't deny with open eyes and a warm heart what's happened the last 75 years. It's palpable, it's painful, it's obvious, it is there for all to see. I also want to talk about your experiences as a lawyer, uh, you know, that's not just a lawyer, but also I would say someone that is very committed to ideas of truth and justice and activism. You've worked with other lawyers like this, uh, from William Kunstler to Lynn Stewart. Could you talk about the kind of lawyer you are and the, the ramifications of that? I mean, what consequences have you and others like Lynn Stewart faced over the years for the work you do? Well, you know, I was privileged. Lynn and I were de facto partners for, I don't know, 15 years or so. And we both ended up, she ended up going to prison for an absurd Sam's violation, which was turned into material support of terrorism. She was sentenced to initially, uh, what, what was initially, it was 25 months, I believe, and came out of the courtroom and had the audacity to say I could do this standing on my head. So the Second Circuit called it back on its own. And she was resentenced to 10 years. Lynn died of cancer eventually. She had been discharged. I too was targeted and ended up in a, in a federal camp, prison camp for around nine months, 10 years ago on the basis of impeding the IRS, which if you look it up, basically says you did something, but we just can't figure out what it is. My family was harassed. My, my practice was, uh, was, was, was victimized. There were problems. Um, I worked with Bill, who was also targeted for a number of years. I was very close with Bill Kunstler late in his life. I worked with Lynn. I worked with Leonard Wineglass. I worked on one case with Chokwe Lumumba. Um, I've worked with other, uh, not, not known, but very successful, prominent, and outstanding human rights lawyers and movement lawyers, for lack of a better word. Um, the, the linchpin among all these various attorneys is that 
we don't see lawyering as as a process which um, validates or vindicates the status quo ante. We see lawyering as a vehicle which, in theory by design, exists for you to challenge the status quo ante, to become pressure and friction onto the machine to undertake unpopular causes, not because we're the ACLU. That's we're not we're not the A. That's then that's you know that's the ACLU, uh, but because um, the only way you can check the system is to confront it in all ways and all shapes and form, and the the one way of doing that is representing people in movements and states that are trivialized and criminalized and persecuted and prosecuted. Um, again, the despaired, the despised, and disaffected. Uh, but keep in mind, and I don't want to downplay public defenders or people spend their years doing criminal defense work in a principled way, 90% of every prosecution in this country, state and federal, is political. 90% of every prosecution in this country has at its roots one's color, one's poverty, one's politics. Yes, there are both internationally and domestically sure you know, movements, um, uh, national liberation movements, movements that are described as terrorists, that have a particular agenda, a particular item, a particular approach. And yes, domestically, there is, uh, um, you know, there are alleged movements because they try to turn this into one grand hierarchical structure, such as Anonymous or Antifa or Black Bloc or the Lower East Side Squatters um, uh, that are involved in daily domestic and international support for resistance. The vast majority of people in this country are persecuted every single day because of their color, because of their politics, or because of their poverty. That's political defense work. So serious criminal defense work that I, you know, people that spend their lives in legal aid, I spent, I guess, six, almost seven years with the Criminal Defense Division of the South Bronx in the, in the 80s, 1980s. Um, very serious political lawyers. Some were still there. Um, so. The Lynn Stewart's, the Bill Kunstler's, the Leonard Wineglasses, the Chokwe Lumumba's, um, and some might say the Stanley Cohen's come from a long line of, 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 of hellraisers and, and advocates beginning. You know, you can go back to Clarence Darrow, who was an idol of mine, and he, was, he had died 50 years before I was born uh, or whatever. But um, these are lawyers that take seriously their responsibility, their position, their power to be friction into the machine. Right now, I'm representing a young woman in, in the Cop City case in, in Atlanta. Oh, oh really? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a political case and who's charged with domestic terrorism and racketeering. We're in federal court right now on a, on a mandamus seeking to have the domestic terrorism statute declared, declared unconstitutional under the First Amendment. We've also filed a similar claim on the RICO charge in Fulton County in Georgia. Um, you know, it's a political case. It doesn't come much more political than that. I've recently represented successfully a rabbi whose family was, the entire family was lost in the Holocaust, except his teenage parents who didn't know each other then, who both survived, survived Auschwitz. He's in his mid-70s and lives in a small upstate town that he and his friends called the town 20, 30, 40, 50 times over demonstrations, press conferences, demanding that the Israeli flag, their anti-Zionist, this rabbi and his friends, be taken off the village hall that was placed up there. And when the town refused, he and his friends went and tore the flag off the side of the building and destroyed it. 
They were charged with felony hate crime. Um, we won. The felony hate crime is dismissed, or it's being dismissed in the next week. That's a political case. Um, I'm awaiting a decision from the Second Circuit on a resentence application on the change in law on a terrorism case that goes back 13 or 14 years. Um, you know, one person's terrorist is another freedom fighter. And, you know, as I've said before, the difference between terrorist and freedom fighter is who wins. Um, so, you know, people like Bill and Lynn and Leonard and Chokwe Lumumba and others, and I guess including myself, are folks that spend or try to spend their lives um, fighting the machine, fucking with the machine, and also as inspiration for the next generation of lawyers to know there is room in the marketplace of battle, as well as the marketplace of ideas for them. I've been lucky. The National Lawyers Guild um, every summer sends me a Hayward Burns fellow. They, that's someone who, a young law student, second or third year, who's going to go into quote unquote movement law or progressive law or radical law, for lack of a better word. And they work for me for the summer. And they work on cases. And this past summer, I I had someone with a brilliant young lawyer work with me on a case that I've been trying in tribal court in Nagwazasani for 18 months. I've had uh, someone else work with me on the issue of another season of extraterritoriality, where I had a client overseas where the U.S. was seeking uh, their basically rendition, what I would call rendition, and didn't fit within the scope of legitimate jurisdiction. So that's an issue. So we do multiple things. We fight the state. Uh, we throw ourselves into the machine. Uh, we typically have as much, if not a better, skill set as trial attorneys and as uh, and as appellate attorneys than the enemy does. Um, and we also serve, I would like to think, as an inspiration for the next generation to understand, yes, you can do it this way. It was a very interesting point you brought up there. You said that, um, you know, one person's uh, freedom fighter is another person or one person's terrorist. It's another person's freedom fighter. I think that the opposite also holds true. So one person's uh, freedom fighter is another person's terrorist, especially if you're a population being bombed uh, by a state like Israel or the U.S. It, I mean, that is living under a form of terror. And I recently had a guest on uh, Rabbi Shaul Magid, who was very annoyed with this line that is coming out of the uh, pro-Israel camp saying, oh, uh, you know, actually, we're, we're bombing Gaza to liberate it from Hamas. And he just said, this is rank colonialism. Uh, could you talk about this idea that, oh, you know, we're the freedom fighters when really, I mean, oftentimes these states like the U.S. or Israel that are bombing a population are seen as terrorists by, you know, the population being bombed. Well, the, the essence of the, the European colonial project is is it's paternalistic, it's patronizing, it's elitist, it's supremacist. So we hear all the time that if you follow the Brooklyn Kahanis line, uh, Palestinians don't love their children. Only Jews love their children. Palestinians would use, excuse me, their children, their wives, their husbands, their family as human shields. Because it's meaningless. They don't care. Only Israeli Jews love their children and mourn and suffer, not Palestinians. That's sort of the linchpin of this racist colonial project dogma, this rhetoric. There's another example I'll give you. Um, you hear frequently from 
um, Israelis, that Israeli Jews, that they're opposed to the one state solution because they realize that what they fear is that with the right of return, millions of Palestinians would come back to Israel or Palestine, Palestine, whatever you want to call it, and engage in what the Hutus did. Interestingly enough, Israel funded the Hutus like they funded Serbia, like they funded South Africa, like they funded Pinochet, like they funded the Shah. But they, they raise this claim that if if the, if one state exists and one person, one vote exists and with a right of return, we're all going to be slaughtered, which is an interesting theory, because keep in mind, you started the show by talking about the notion of Israeli democracy. Everyone agrees that Palestinians for 75 years have been under siege one way or another. Now, forget about reasons why or how. We can debate that. But everyone agrees between the diaspora community and the lack of state, state and being stateless between the occupation, between a double standard, between the loss of life, between the loss of liberty and freedom, between detention, between dispossession, everyone can agree that millions and millions of Palestinians have paid an enormous life price and sacrifice for being nothing more than Palestinian. Okay, now, Israel talks about what a wonderful democracy it is. Israel Jews, Israeli Jews talk about the educational benefits, the medical benefits, the economic benefits, the scientific benefits, the political benefits, the equality, the system of justice, all these wonderful things Israel talks about. So let me see if I understand this. Another example of European colonial racist bullshit, okay, supremacist nonsense. So Palestinians, if they are, if there is one state and the right of return exists and one person, one vote exists, let me see if I understand this. People that have paid this enormous price for 75 plus years are going to come back to this egalitarian, great freedom, this country that's built with wonderful opportunity, benefits, health, education, and everything to destroy it. Is that what they want to do? Look, we've been fucked up for 75 years, so we're going to go to the world's greatest democracy that offers the most benefits for everyone. We're going to get even. We want to hurt our families, our kids, and our lives for another generation or two or three by destroying this beautiful society. You just have to think through the rhetoric. And that's what the linchpin of, of, of this notion about we're going to rescue Palestinians in Gaza from a movement that was elected years ago. And who has offered for years to run for re-election, but it's been denied by Israel throughout the West Bank. This notion that who's going to who who has who has been starving Palestine, denying it electricity, mass shooting for the last 17 years, Hamas or Israel? It's been Israel. So this notion, and and of course Israel's done it now. The answer to ending the pain and suffering from Hamas, according to Israel, is to slaughter 25,000 Palestinians, to destroy all of Gaza, to ruin all of the businesses, to displace two and a half million people, to kill 15,000 children, to destroy Gaza so that we can turn around and turn it into a beachfront for, for folks from Brooklyn. That's how you, you liberate Palestinians? We had to burn the village to save it? I recall that's what President Nixon said years ago. It's nonsense, it's bullshit, it's transparent, and it's, it bespeaks at its core like the notion of, 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 of the, 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 human, uh, the human sacrifice, the human shelter, the human shield, this supremacy, this notion, 
And it also talks about how disrespectful Israeli Zionists are to the rest of the world. We're all stupid. We can't see through that. Of course we're dumb. We're going to listen to the Zionists spewing this nonsense. My co-host has joined us. He was in traffic. Uh, Bassam. Uh, hello. I just got here. I thought I would let um, my co-host today, JG, take the show for uh, 37 minutes. Um, how are you doing, Taylor? You get a speeding ticket and get pulled over by cops? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I wish. Uh, I just was at a little black site for 45 minutes. So I wanted to ask you some questions. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't say anything, uh, though. I didn't give you names. So, I... Bassam, I, I was going to say, I think uh, you coming in here at this time was really good because we were talking about a number of issues related to uh, colonialism and Israel, uh, you know, pushing back on claims that, you know, Israel uh, and democracy are these interchangeable terms. And one thing that you and I have often talked about is uh, liberal Zionism. Ooh. And I have been OK with. I, I have been okay with like certain voices that I've talked to at Herrats. I think they can be reasonable at times. I think you take uh, a much more hardline stance, Basong. No, so I wanted you no. to be able to I ask about uh, I the say more hardline. You know, you you're a journalist, yeah. a much better journalist than I am. I think, and you you take on a wide variety of voices. I personally am just very annoyed by many um, liberal right. Zionists. Especially those with media careers, um, I don't find them saying particularly much, and I don't find that they um, represent that large of a group of people. Well, I, I was going to say I think that would be a uh, a good area to explore with um, Stanley because you know I, I know Stanley has uh, strong criticisms of liberal Zionists. Yeah is is there a liberal Zionist movement anymore, or is that something that we should be? Take into account with like organizing or just like, I don't know, is it a large constituency anymore? Is there a future for it? Sure, it's like military justice. It has a nice, a nice sound and swoon to it. Liberal Zionism has simply been an excuse to permit the status quo, to permit an what they consider to be an enlightened Israeli project to exist. Give it some breathing room. It's well-intentioned. And yes, it's terrible to kill 50,000 people. It's terrible to destroy, to displace millions of people. But it's necessary. And ultimately, we're all going to go kumbaya and light candles. And you'll see, in two, three, four, five, six generations, we'll all love one another. Well, my response to liberal Zionism is the only difference between liberal Zionism and full-on Zionism is the sort of the distinction between a brain tumor and, and and colon cancer. How long do you have left to live? They're nice massages. They're nice songs. They're nice rhetoric. They allow people to sit on fences and periodically they get a, a, a splinter up their ass and they have to jump off. People like Beinhardt, who have now become this voice of progressive Judaism on MSNBC. You know, everyone loves him because he talks about ideal, he talks about justice, he talks about freedom, he talks about liberty. Having spent 30 years spewing the nonsense that Israel is an enlightened democratic institution that's simply misunderstood, and even now, when he talks about the formulas for change, he always ends everything with but. All right, so liberal Zionism is just, it's absurd, it's obscene. 
Uh, thank you so much for that answer. I really appreciate it. I'm going to be quoting you in full whenever anybody mentions Peter Byron now. Uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. I, I mean, to be fair, I, it's funny. I just talked to Peter a few days ago. When I said anybody, I meant you. I'm sorry, Jimmy. Well, I think he's become more or less a one-stater, but then I look at other liberal Zionists like I Not Wilf, who will just say literally everything is the fault of Palestinians. And it's always uh, Palestinian rejectionism. And I just, she she's called a liberal Zionist. And I just don't, I don't understand how you can blame Palestinians for everything. Because if only they didn't wear a short skirt and smile at me, says the rapist to the victim. I mean, come on. You know, it's, it's, it, 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 the whole Israeli narrative, the whole Zionist narrative, the whole European colonial narrative for a hundred years has been, we are the victims, you are the victimizers. We have a right to reclaim. Let me ask you, let me give you an example for Peter Beinhardt and for the others, the liberal Zionists. And I had a discussion the other day. As you know, I have represented, my partner is a Mohawk woman. We've been together for 27 oh, years. Oh, wow. I have represented, I, I have represented uh, indigenous communities, the Iroquois Confederacy in particular, for almost 30 years. Uh, I was arrested and indicted and they beat the case in Canada for seditious conspiracy over Oka. So my response to, I was the, the American lawyer who was there. My response to those people that still puff and puff the notion of, but look, 3,000 years ago, it was out. We got forced out, we got kicked out, and now we've come back the last 100 and 150 years. And yes, some of us may have been abusive, and yes, there was violence, and yes, there was land theft, and yes, there was problems, but we're just returning home. So my response, to, especially to liberal Zionists, is look, I represent the Iroquois in upstate New York. Syracuse, New York has a Jewish community that's, I don't know, six to 9,000 Jews, and, there's, and, and many more Christians and some Muslims. And it's 20 to 30 miles from the Onondaga Nation, from Oneida, from part of the Confederacy, which never left, which has been there for 3,000 years, 5,000 years. And only the last 100, 150 years have European colonialists come in to live there. So my question to them is, would you have a problem if my clients put together a caravan of machine guns and tanks and jeeps and bulldozers and came into Syracuse? and kicked all the Jews out of their land that's been theirs for 5,000 years, unbroken, that people, Europeans, have only come in, in the last 100, 150 years, destroyed their homes, destroyed their businesses, ruined their farm. Would you have a problem with that? And people look at me and say, well, that's different. And I say, well, how is it different? You're right, it's different, because the Zionist claim is we're going somewhere we haven't been for 3,000 years. And the Haudenosaunee claim is, you people only showed up 150 years ago, and we've never left for 5,000 years. So it is this moral imperative, this inconsistency, this never-ending series of rationales, whether you be the full-on Brooklyn Kahanists or whether you be the Beinhardt Israeli you know, Zionist liberals. Keep in mind that there are some people that are described as anti-Zionists that or anti-Israel that still believe in the necessity for a Jewish state. And I don't need to get into names. It's changed a bit. There are some progressives that have been opposed to BDS in its fullest sense because they saw it as an unfair targeting of a community that didn't deserve it. So 
if you get into this whole liberal Zion, liberal Zionist, you know, Sololinsky, who was Martin Luther King's, one of his top organizers, was a communist and had to leave because of that, once described liberals as people who stomped their, their, their feet down in righteous indignation in thin air. That was his definition of liberals. Liberal Zionist is even worse because liberal Zionists still buy the notion that not only is it cool to talk to God, but God answers us back. I got no problem with people of faith that want to talk to the creator, whoever she or he or it may be. My problem is with those folks that get marching orders from space and liberal Zionists still do. They just want to clean it up, sterilize it, make it sound good. You know, there's someone, I don't want to get into names, there's someone who's a liberal Zionist who lives in Quds. He's been there about 70 years and he loves his home and he loves the community. And he's always talking about his solidarity with the, the with the quote local Arab, he says, and instead of Palestinian community. It's always Arabs. It's never Palestinians. That's a, that's a key thing to watch out for. So I say to him, I, I say, what are you doing in, in Quds? You're in East. Let's just deal with East Jerusalem. Forget about West. What are you doing there? I mean, you've got a home. How did you get there? Are you willing to leave? Are you willing to leave it up to your neighbors to decide if you could stay or no? And that's when you start getting into, look, yes, there are some people that, some Zion, quote unquote, self-professed Zionists that are slowly breaking through. But most liberal Zionists I come across are full of shit. They want, they want the best of all times, no matter what. It's always, we need another generation or two. It's always give us time. It's always, you know, it's like, it's it's sort of the same argument that you hear that, that DeSantis talked about. Well, there was a benefit to slavery because it empowered a skill set for some slaves they wouldn't have had but for slavery. So there's always this theft of redeeming value, some feature that gets drawn out of it. The other argument that I've heard from liberal Zionists is, look, there have been Arab states that have been very poor in terms of support for Palestine. And we're going to fill that void. Are you? Lawrence of Arabia shows up. Great. No, it's Lawrence of Brooklyn. It's Lawrence of Poland. I mean, it's obscene. The reality of it is it's time to get off the fences. I have no time for liberal Zionists. I don't talk with them. I don't debate with them. Uh, and, and as I say, give me a call when you're willing to go back to Brooklyn or stay there. Thank you. That was a... Uh... That was really good answer. I appreciate that. We learned to be taking a lot of that in the future discussions. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about just the mechanics of the law. I'm very ignorant of the law. Uh, I always hire a lawyer. I've never defended myself and I don't plan to. Um, but I did ask a friend of mine who's a lawyer um, and she had a question. She said, What ethical and legal, what ethical and philosophical traditions and concepts did you draw from in addition to the relevant laws in your defense of uh, like Hezbollah and Hamas members in courts? I, I, I leave that for, let me, let me give you an example, an answer. When I was in law school a thousand years ago, I was in a constitutional law class and we were debating a decision from the Supreme Court. And it was a terrible decision. It was an immoral decision. It was a horrible decision. And, you know, we were arguing back and forth. The professor looked at me and said, Mr. Cohen, 
there is a school of theology up the street. You need to go up there and become a philosopher, become a monk. You are here in law school. I have no doubt that you are going to integrate your own principles, your own values, your own experience, your own aspirations in the practice of law. But I also know you're going to kick ass as a lawyer because you're obviously very skilled and your skill set's going to get only better. I don't get fucked up over this. What values did I have to bring to represent his ball? I got a bigger question. When I took my oath, I had my fingers crossed. What value do lawyers need in order to represent Epstein or Wall Street or the president or 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 international? You know what? What you never hear that then. You never hear what values are necessary if you're an Israeli lawyer arguing in the ICJ. I mean, I think I mean more in the right way speak. that like. How do you convince a judge to give a guy from Gaza, like, a fair shot? You know, like, how does that work? I don't have to convince, look, I'm a skilled, my skill set as a litigator is equal to any prosecutor in the United States and probably any in the world. All right. I spent seven years as a criminal defense attorney in the South Bronx kicking ass. And all these years later, I still do it. I don't need to convince judges anywhere. I know the game. I know how it's played. I know the rules of evidence. I know what the skill set is. I know how to talk to a jury. Um, and I fight the fight. So I don't worry about that. Um, I, I, you know, Judge, it's funny, Judge Kaplan, mm -hmm. who's now, you know, who I've known for a good number of years and who was the judge who was my judge for a year and a half in the defense of Abu Ghayt, so, uh, Suleiman Abu Ghayt, which is bin Laden's son-in-law. Um, although that's a mis misunderstood. He wasn't a son-in-law until he was actually in prison in Iran for 11 years when he married bin Laden's daughter, who was also a prison oh. there. Now, yeah, um, I'll give you an example. Judge Kaplan, who I tried Abu Ghayt with, we had our fights, we had our rants, we had our raves. He's very smart, he's very determined, and he's really a beast and who's been, been steamrolling Trump and his idiot lawyers for months now. We had a debate, we had an argument one day over, you know, the prosecutor sort of stepped back, it was just Kaplan and I going over a suppression issue. And I brought up an issue that Kaplan hadn't thought about. And he said, you know, Mr. Cohen, I had been all honest, I haven't thought about that. Um, that's very interesting, very provocative, and I'm gonna have to think about it, congratulations. And I said, well, I'm just a country lawyer, Judge. <laughs> and he looked at the prosecutor and said, Mr. So-and-so, do you have any idea what country he belongs to? Because it sure as shit ain't the U.S. Um, look, the serious litigators, the seasoned litigators, the political litigators, they don't deal with that bullshit. If, if politics are part of the defense, we flesh it out. If it's a classic defense, it's a classic defense. You got to know how to get evidence in. You got to know how to beat up witnesses. You got to know how to move a jury. It doesn't matter whether your name is Schwartz or Mahmoud. It doesn't matter whether it's a drug case or whether it's a material support of terrorism case. It doesn't matter. There's a skill set. Now, sure, a lot of the, the preparation for cases is massaging. Um, it's, 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 I don't know if this answers the question. The most efficient, the most effective, the most powerful defense attorneys, and that's, that's, that doesn't mean all, but it means many of them, are those attorneys that take over the court during trial. That the jury looks to them 
day in and day out, and not the prosecutor, not even the judge. And that's a skill set. So your friend, who may have been concerned about what what skill set is necessary to convince a judge. I mean, look, when I represented Abu Marzouk, I mean, I had a terrible judge, and he kept beating us. I mean, it was not applying the law, not doing what he had to do, but we did a side around. We ended up cutting a deal with Aman, and when it came time for him to, to now kick buddy thought, we walked in and the government walked in and said, case dismissed. And Abu Marzouk walked out, got on an airplane and ended up in, in Jordan. So there are ways that you massage. Yeah. This. I'm just like, it just, um, it's, it's wild to me that like a guy who's in Hezbollah or Hamas can get a fair trial. I'm just wondering, like, how do you handle that? How do you go in to these situations knowing that there's a, like a deck stacked against you? And like, and, or in what ways is a deck stacked against you when you go to represent somebody who is not necessarily a friend of the U.S. government? Well, it depends. I mean, if you're talking about a judicial process, not a trial, if you're talking about investigations and you're talking about in, indictments, when you're talking about motions, when you're talking about pure law, it doesn't matter. It's pure law. Yes, you may spend a lot. I've had 20 or 30 cases over the years where I've convinced the, the Department of Justice not to indict a client or to dismiss charges who was alleged to be involved with, with, with terrorism, material supported, because I had no case. Forget about right, wrong, good, bad, or different. Or there are compromises and deals are settled. That's one thing. It's got nothing to do. When I have a case, people, lawyers know, the prosecutors, U.S. attorneys, assistant U.S. attorneys know who I am. Agents know who I am. They know my background. You know, but that's got nothing to do with this. I recently had a case where... Because when I went to court, my lawyer, he was a pretty, you know, he was a pretty big for a country lawyer in Philadelphia. He walked into the courtroom. The police captain left. I saw him in the break room drinking a coffee right before he was about to testify. He just let me go. I saw him drinking a coffee. I shot him some finger guns on the way out. Um. I don't know. It's not a question of a phrase. I, I, I think seasoned prosecutors and agents and cops know who the hell I am. And they know this is not, you're not going to steamroll my, me. You're not going to steamroll my client. You got a battle on your hand. I recently had a proffer session with a client and, and two FBI agents, two assistant U.S. attorneys. Uh, six weeks ago on a matter which turned out fine for us. And I walked in and the chief FBI agent who used to be in the Middle East said something to me and I answered in Arabic because I knew he had been in the Middle East. And he laughed at me and he said to me back, broken Arabic, but I'm, you must be busy these days. This was like in November. And I said, nom, nom, nom. And we, you know, and the, the, the federal prosecutors were looking at us because there was this, look, don't jerk me around. Don't jerk my client. Let's deal with reality. We deal with real world. So the other thing that people don't understand is the difference between representing someone who is set up by the Department of Justice or federal agents for so-called terrorism cases or material support of terrorism. Those are not serious political people. They're targets. They're set up. They're you typically young. They're typically inexperienced. They're typically naive. They may say some stupid thing. There's a difference between that and representing the leader of, of, of Hamas. And you're dealing with the Department of Justice because they realize this is not about, oh, gee, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. I wish I had not been running the red light. This is when you're dealing with serious political people, serious political movement. I've had a half dozen members of Hamas 
leaders, organizers in the United States who went to prison rather than cooperate and provide information to a grand jury. I've heard jury. about this, yeah. About they, the like grand jury resistance. About Palestinians. It, it's, uh, it's very scary. They made it. They made the, you know, interestingly, love Judge McKay, who was the chief judge who later became the U.S. attorney and who was a big right-wing reactionary. I had uh, Ismail El-Barasa, who was the bookkeeper for Hamas in the early days. He was subpoenaed before a grand jury, and he refused to testify, and he read a brilliant statement to them, basically said, listen, I've done nothing wrong, but I am not going to provide information about my people, our history, our movement, our future to, 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 to become part of the problem. I'm part of the solution. Thank you. Goodbye. He got put in jail. Civil contempt. The defense to civil contempt is it's no longer, it, it can't be punitive. It's got to be coercive. As long as there's any hope that staying in jail can coerce someone to cooperate, they're permitted to stay up to 18 months. Huh. After, five or, after five or six months, I filed a motion with Mukasey saying, look, it's clearly not going to work. It's not coercive. He's not going to change. You can't keep him in there. As it turned out, Mukasey released him. He agreed. And he dropped a footnote in his decision. He said, of course, the court will take judicial notice that Mr. Cohen also represented the head of Hamas, Abu Marzouk. And this gentleman is a dear friend of his, apparently based upon what I've seen. So the likelihood of him cooperating is zero. Now, what they've now done over the years is when you have grand jury contenders who refuse to cooperate, yes, you can be re released from grand jury contempt. Then they prosecute you for criminal contempt. And if it's in the context of a terrorism investigation, it's a potential 10-year charge. And I've had those cases as well. Um, so there, you mentioned something very interesting there. And it's something I've thought a lot about. And I don't think I don't have a lot of hard evidence for. But these cases where the FBI arrests a guy five minutes before he detonates a Lego device or something, you know, something he made at Walmart. Which was provided by the FBI that doesn't work. Tell me about that. What, right. the, what the hell is going on there? Is that is that just how you make a career? Is that 75% of fucking terrorism case? Sorry for my language. <laughs> I have done more. I have done more domestic terrorism cases, real and fake, that in one way or another, whether as a defense attorney, whether representing a witness, whether representing a target, than probably any lawyer in this country. 95% of all the so-called terrorism cases, domestic terrorism cases prosecuted here are bullshit. They are typically, I had a case, an unfortunate case, where a young guy used to, post 9-11, used to like to look like, dress like Osama bin Laden in his high school in New Jersey. And why? He said, because I could get laid. That's why he did this look. Now, if he's set up to go to He's set up to go to Egypt to do jihad. I said, oh, he's going to Egypt to do jihad? Come on. Really? All right. And they're driving him to the airport to put him on a plane to go to Egypt to do jihad when the agent all of a sudden hears a meow coming from the back seat. And the agent says to my client, what is that? He said, well, that's Pucky. I'm bringing my cat with me. And the agent said, you're bringing your cat with you? He was a CI. To Egypt to do jihad? He says, well, he, he doesn't, how's he going to live without me? So they turned around and, brought, and, and went back. And they eventually told him, don't worry about it. We've made arrangements for a cat for you when you get to Egypt. I mean, these are the kinds of cases so you have. Where, 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 look, 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 
I, I'm dealing with someone who's now in year 13. I'm waiting for a decision from the Second Circuit of a 27-year sentence who was 19 fucking years old, who said he, in a, who at the time was 20, he was the son of an apartment landlord, a, super, a, a, a superintendent at an apartment in the Bronx, who went also went to Egypt and eventually he was good. He didn't know. I'm going to join Al-Qaeda. I'm going to join uh, Al-Shabaab. I'm going to join LSD. And he went with his friend. And they went. And everywhere they went, they struck out. They got nothing. And the friend finally said, I've had enough. I'm going home. And so he says, first, I'm going to go to Kosovo. They were both family were from Kosovo. So they both went. And then the younger one was 18 or 19, came back and admitted to his father everything. So he cooperated. My client gets arrested. He wasn't my client originally. And there's claims of material support for terrorism. They recovered some weapons. They admit there's no evidence connecting them to the weapons because he made a video which showed blowing up the Statue of Liberty, all right? He was in Kosovo, and the question was asked, do you know was there was a NATO base there? No, I had no idea. You didn't go to the NATO base, did you? Well, what were you going to do there? I was trying to figure it out. He got 27 years, all right? He was 20 years old when this shit happened. All of these cases. That's a lot. Amina Ali, who I represented in the Eighth Circuit on appeal, is, is, is a Somali woman who grew up in a refugee camp, who decided that she wanted to send money to the refugee camp for food and clothes. She initially puts together, raises money, and gets a car, a, a, a train load full of food and medicine and clothing. And the FBI approaches her and says, you can't do that. It's material support of terrorism. You can't do that. Someone dropped a dime on her. So they never said to her, you can't raise money for the same purpose. So she puts together $35,000, which she sends to a refugee camp. And because the refugee camp is near a, a an al-Shabaab camp, they charge you with material support really? terrorism. And she gets 20 years. So, I mean, the lists of these, you know, these, these four guys have now been released by a judge in the Southern District of New York who were convicted, got 25, 30 years in an FBI sting years ago where the FBI drew them in by setting meetings up at a Kentucky Fried Chicken and giving these guys a free charge account at the Kentucky Fried Chicken, the judge now released them because there's suddenly evidence of government misconduct. This is the same judge that gave them 25, 30 years, 12, 14, 18 years ago, and knew the evidence then. So spare me. So most of these cases are all bullshit. And they get away with it. Because they claim it's national security and they're one step away. So, yes, we provide the fake machine gun for someone. We provide the fake explosive device. We send someone to a courthouse. We line it up. We talk to them, someone who has serious mental health issues. And when it comes time to pull the trigger, you're under arrest and you're getting 40 years. That's what they're about. Yeah, there's that, uh, there's that one case. I think I showed it to you. It's like the pizza delivery guy. They, like, make a fake girlfriend for him. She leaves him. They make a different, like, jihadi girlfriend for the guy. She tells him to go fucking, you know, shoot up a mall or whatever for global reasons. <laughs> and he goes there immediately gets domed. FBI agent gets arrested leaving the scene. Like, this shit's crazy. Like, I really... What's crazy to me is uh, I only know of one... I, I would call him sort of a mainstream journalist that covers this, Trevor Aronson. No one else will touch entrapment as, as being much more common than, than anyone admits. Well, you know, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, keep in, I was cross-examining. I had a doctor I was representing 
on an immigration problem, who they wanted to revoke his bail because they had claims that it actually had implications of, of international terrorism. So they moved for a bail revocation in the Eastern District of New York in a case that I eventually got dismissed completely. And they called as their first witness an intelligence specialist from the Joint Terrorism Task Force. The Joint Terrorism Task Force is comprised of local cops, of state troopers, and of federal agents. And typically, the local cops weren't that far removed from giving traffic tickets. So they brought this so-called international terrorism expert, an intel expert, who used to be in the New York City Police Department for three hours and 37 minutes, and they put him on a witness stand. And he was going to give his opinion on what, how my client had done certain, certain things that did certain results. So I started questioning him in Arabic. And his mouth dropped, and the judge's mouth dropped. And I said, uh, you don't speak Arabic. He said, no. I said, so if there's communications, discussions, or exchanges, do you have a translator? He says, yes, that's what I use. And I said, well, suppose it's con contemporaneous. Do you tell the person to shut up while you go get a translator? I then started asking him to please let us know the, country, the countries, the cities he's actually been to in the Middle East or North Africa or Africa. None. We go right down this list. And he ends up basically saying he took a four-week course from the FBI on international terrorism. And that's why he's the expert. Judge says, do you have any further oh questions for the government? No. Bail status remains the same. See you later. Case eventually. I know they say cops don't get a lot of training, but I assume the specialized roles at least got more than a four-week course. Jesus Christ. God damn it. The Joint Terrorism Task Force is a shit show. That's like fucking border they're, they're, patrol they're, shit. That is no no technical skills. Yeah, well, <laughs> That's crazy. Well, you know, I know some serious agents. Um, I've dealt with both CIA and FBI that are serious. They know their shit. They've been around. And they're bad. And even they roll their eyes at the rest of these fucking squads. Oh, oh my God. That's awesome. That's, you just take it at a community college. You get like 20000 extra a year, you know, in the NYPD or something. That's a sweet gig. I don't blame them, you know. You get to you get to look like yeah. a badass. You get to put the clothes on. You get to do the whole beard thing. You get to go to a masjid on weekends and make believe you're praying. You know what the oh fuck's going god. on, but you forget to take your shoes oh off. Oh my god! So it's like the countdown. You no, know, it's stupid shit. Yeah, you know it's it's crazy. Oh my god! I I hope this isn't too uh, inside baseball, but we mentioned uh, Lynn Stewart earlier, and whenever I you know Google Lynn Stewart's name, all all I will see is uh, you know, charges of conspiracy and providing material support to terrorists. So what is Lynn's, what was Lynn's side of the story? Because we never actually hear that side of it. I think she was, um, her client was uh, Omar Abdelrahman, yeah, 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 yeah. the, the blind sheikh. Lynn's prosecution, they, they turned a SAM violation into a material support violation on the grounds that Lynn, after seeing a client, left and made a public statement about information he had provided, which the government claimed had an adverse impact or could have in Egypt. That was basically the case. It was really a classic violation of a SAM agreement. I'm not even sure if it was that classic a violation. And what they should have done was brought a, a, a complaint with the grievance committee against her. But that's not what they wanted to do. They wanted to make a, 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 a target out of her. They brought other people in who were involved in a particular case. It was total bullshit. But, you know, Jerry spoke. Lynn said, fuck you. And they said, you're getting two and a half years. And the Second Circuit remanded for reconsideration. And the judge uh, gave her tenure. So, uh, Assam, maybe you want to help 
wrap this episode up because I know oh, you came yeah, in late. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, ah. Yeah. Uh, no, I am deeply sorry. But um, yeah, I, this was absolutely fantastic. I'm I'm really glad that we got you on here. This was, you've given us a lot to think about. And uh, I did I did want to mention one final thing before we left. Uh, is that uh, you have an article on your website, uh, ifstanleycohen.org, uh, where it's your, it is, I believe that's you, on a man with a gigantic ball, ball sack, like a, a yeah, large yeah, screw. Yeah, that was the JDL. That, that was the year that I was voted the number one self-hating Jew in the really? world, and they put that out there on oh, their website. This is disgusting, but... Were you... Were you- were you out of curiosity? Did they put you on the uh, – I remember some Kahanists had this uh, list back in the 2000s called like the Masada 2000 list of, of self-hating Jews. Were you on, I was number one. They put uh, you on Three that? years in a row, I was number one. You know, you might have been there. My dad got into a fight with a bunch of JDL guys in like the early 90s. <laughs> Said he got a good one. I'll tell you a funny story about the, the JDL. The JDL, two funny stories. One is they came – to my neighborhood on Avenue D between 8th and 9th Street on the Lower East Side to demonstrate, first from the Jacob Reese Projects, where I had dozens of black and brown clients. And they came to demonstrate, and they were screaming and yelling, and all the brothers and sisters from the projects came out and said, you know, get the fuck out of our hood, we're going to fuck you up. So they drove the JDL out of the neighborhood. And they That's awesome. Back. The second one was when I was trying the Abu Ghaith case, Suleiman Abu Ghaith, bin Laden's son-in-law, and they went around a different JDL, third generation assholes, went around the entire neighborhood, around the courthouse, around buildings, on cars, and they posted, Cohen's a Jew hater, Cohen needs to be shut down, Cohen is a terrorist, Cohen is blah, 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 blah. I didn't even know it. I get into court that day and the judge said, Mr. Cohen, do you want me to ask the U.S. Marshals to provide security for you? And I said, for what? <laughs> and he tells me what it was and I start laughing. I said, these guys are so full of shit. I said, you know, they, they take arthritis medicine these days. They rant and rave. Where are the fucking bomb throwers and the assassins is in the occupied territory. They come back to Brooklyn and they're housebroken and they talk shit. The original JDL was not. The original JDL planted bombs. They executed yeah. people. Um, they, they engaged in a whole host of domestic terrorism activity. But the subsequent generations and iterations, including the current Brooklyn Kahanists, when they come back to Brooklyn for the weekend or for the week or for the month, they get their LL frequent flyer flights. They sit in their apartment, they talk shit, they do nothing, they pose no threat. Which leads me to the ultimate conclusion at the end of the day. This notion, I had a discussion with the, the, a journalist who's from the West Coast, whose wife is a rabbi, about we were laughing. This notion that the Jewish community is under siege in the United States is absolute green black rubbish. It is total bullshit. The Jewish community is under siege in the United States the way Donald Trump is a humanitarian. I mean, it's total rubbish. No one's under siege. I get it. If I go walking down the street, someone says, oh, there's a Jew. I can tell by their walk, by their clothes, by their shoes, by their hair. I'm going to fuck them up. I mean, it's total rubbish. It's self-serving nonsense. And to the degree that you have college students that are afraid or intimidated by the marketplace of fucking ideas, by demonstrations, by boycotts, by sit-ins, by political action. I did that shit 50 years ago. If you can't handle it, get the fuck out. Hey, there There were just two more things I was going to add to that. Uh, with regards to Greenblatt, I found it really interesting. He claims to be worried about rising anti-Semitism. Uh, the ADL includes, you know, any pro-Palestinian 
uh, rallies or protests as being, you know, anti-Semitism. And yet he speaks so highly of Elon Musk. Uh, and, you know, it's just it's disgusting. He even went so far as to. Uh, say that Elon Musk is the 21st century Henry Ford, and he was saying this positively. I'm thinking to myself, Henry Ford he is like the ultimate the anti-Semite. Protocols when they bought a car. That's crazy. You see that, that Musk and, and Musk and and Shapiro did the the Auschwitz war show this weekend. No, no. I, I saw that, and I said, you know, I lost most of my family in Europe, and you know, I got to tell you, they're not happy right now. Between Musk and Shapiro, that's the last fucking thing their memory needs. Listen, Greenblatt would sell rafts in the desert. He's the Zionist counterpart to Sean King. It's he's, he's really disgusting. He's so disingenuous. Just such a clear partisan hack. What a son of a bitch. God damn it. Well, the other thing, he's smart enough to stay away from debates with people that know the deal. He's smart enough to avoid people like me that will cripple him on facts, that will cripple him on law, that will you know, end up smacking his ass and sending him home to cry. He doesn't deal with that. So what does he do? He goes on MSNBC, he goes on CNN, he goes on Fox, he does his little speak-ins, and he does all the little bullshit talking points, and it always concludes with, you know, they hate us. They all hate us. I said, yeah, I hate you. You're an asshole. That's my <laughs> they all hate, hate me. They all hate me. nothing to do with the facts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Oh, so. I, I know you have to get going, but I, I had one more just brief question here. So you, you've had a number of media interviews over the years uh, with bigger platforms than the one we're on right now. So, you know, I found it interesting in 2015, the New Republic did a profile of you. And what I found very telling about that was they said, well, there, there's a lot of legitimate criticism uh, that you know, Stanley makes of Israeli policy, but he's so bombastic about it. I think they use the word obnoxious, and, but they didn't really address your criticism. Well, pardon me for being outraged over genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, apartheid, violation of the law of war. Pardon me for being bombastic. I should sit there very quietly and light a candle and sing Kumbaya. Is that the way we do this? Fuck them. They can't stand. You know, I debated and beat the shit out of what the hell's his name? Um, um, in the Doha debates in 2006. From oh, really? You know, and from late. <laughs> yeah, you should look it up. The Doha debates, 2006. Beat the shit out of him. It was in. It was in Doha. It went international. And then afterwards, we were having something to eat, and 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 Fromm was upset. And he said, he basically said, you didn't really have to beat me up that way. And I said, oh, I must have missed the paycheck. I mean, is that the deal? I mean, you're up here. I'm there on the point. It was just after the election of Hamas, whether the world community needs to recognize Hamas. And we we argued both sides. There were four of us that argued. And at the end of it, the audience voted 87 to 6 or whatever. In really? Faith. But, you know, from, well, yeah, from is, you know, now he's in the land of whatever it is. He's the, you know, the wannabe. Liberal Zionist. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Well, look, Stanley, it was really nice having you on. Um, listeners, uh, go check out Stanley's website. Um, do you have anything coming up or any books or anything that you'd like to? Uh... Well, the funny thing about my website is I haven't updated it in five years, <laughs> six years. I'm too busy. Yeah, you're mainly using Twitter now. Well, no, and I yeah. also write a lot for Counterpunch. And if you haven't seen my latest article, it's called Guilty as Charged. 
4,000 words. I sat down at 10 o'clock at night. I drank a couple of glasses of wine. I woke up, at, I, went, I, I, I got up at three in the morning and I kicked out this piece, which has been viewed by several hundred thousand people. You get a chance to take a look at it. It's called Guilty as Charged. Awesome. Great. We'll have that in the subscription. That sounds great. Guilty as charged. Uh, also, you're very kind. I got here like fucking 30 minutes late. I expected you to just beat the shit out of me when I came on. I was afraid of you. You're a tough oh, lawyer, you. you know, but no, very. Yeah. You, you took great pity on me. You were very friendly. <laughs> and uh, I will be calling you. I'm a friendly you. sort of guy. Yeah, also, I'm a friendly sort of guy, except if you fuck with my people. And that ain't you. I'm not one of your enemies. So, so you know, I'm, I'm very glad. And I'll try to keep no, it that way. Um, also, I will be emailing you later. I have chosen to defend myself in a securities fraud case coming up. So, um, <laughs> yeah. You know the old saying, the lawyer who has, represents himself as a fool for a client. <laughs> oh. All right. Uh, how do we end this show, JG? Oh, wait. Also, everybody, check out uh, JG Michael's show, Parallax Views. Uh, I've been on there a couple times. I'll post the link in the description. Uh, and how do we end this show? Uh, yeah. Free Palestine, fuck the police. That's a wrap. And up the rebels. Hell yeah. Up the rebels. Our motion, this House believes the international community must accept Hamas as a political partner. Well, speaking for the motion, Stanley Cohen, an American lawyer and an outspoken supporter of Palestinian rights. He's represented many Arab and Muslim activists in the US, including the head of Hamas's political wing, Musa Abu Marzouk, whose extradition was sought by Israel in the 90s. With him is Dr. Mahmoud Mohamedou. He's Associate Director of the Harvard Program on Humanitarian Policy and Conflict Research. He's currently completing a book on Al-Qaeda. And against the motion, Salim Mansour, born in India. He's Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Western Ontario in Canada and is a frequent contributor to newspapers and journals in America. And David Frum, former special assistant and speechwriter to President George W. Bush and now resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's credited with inventing the phrase axis of evil, or at least two out of the three words, which have gone into the history books and brought its author plenty of notoriety. Ladies and gentlemen, our panel. And now let me call on Stanley Cohen, first of all, to speak for the motion, please. Thank you. Hamas won for a very simple reason. Hamas is the Palestinian people. It is an expression of their desire to be free of the occupation. It is their pride and their ability to be resilient for 60 years. Hamas won because it touched a chord in all Palestinians. Now what is the West to do today? We know what the West has done since 1948 to Palestinians. Six million living in a diaspora, tens of thousands slaughtered, hundreds of thousands injured, homes destroyed, millions jailed and tortured, a wall built, the balkanization of Palestine. Thank you. I think the international community has done quite enough. I think it is now up to the Palestinians and Israelis on the ground to take the lead to resolve this particular issue. And what of the role of the United States in particular? Well. We know the United States has provided $178 billion for the machinery of death in Palestine. So I find it interesting when the president or people in the West talk about Hamas laying down its weapons as a precursor or a precondition. Maybe Israel needs to lay down its weapons for a change. 
Now, the demands of Israel are very interesting. There are three demands that Israel suggests must be met before they will sit down and meet with the chosen representatives of the Palestinian people. One, they demand that Hamas acknowledge the existence of Israel. Interesting. Okay, they acknowledge the existence of Israel. For decades, they negotiated with the PLO, which had a charter that called for the destruction of Israel. They still negotiated. They, ne they negotiated out of reality. Last week, Musa Abu Marzouk himself announced that Israel exists. Now let's move along to the issues. Finally, we have the issue of acknowledgement, acknowledging prior conditions. I know of no government in the world that takes power and automatically accepts blindly all previous acknowledged uh, all previous acknowledgments or agreements that have been entered into without looking to see if they make sense, if they are wise. The world has two choices. The world can either continue going where we've been for decades, we can continue to destabilize. I must ask you to come to a conclusion. I shall. Or we can do as the Jewish philosopher Spinoza said many years ago, there is no hope without fear. And the real fear at this point is that we will miss this opportunity and seek to punish Palestinians for this golden chance <laughs> to grab peace finally at the end of the tunnel. Thank you. Thank <clears throat> you.